Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Yes. I uh, appreciate that. Uh, yes, it's also Chris Barnell's, so we're going to, yes. Um, so happy Mother's Day, um, all right, because that's uh, kind of a really big deal. Um, although I do tell my mom sometimes, because my birthday and Mother's Day sometimes line up, I tell her you're welcome, because I want to take a little bit of credit since I'm the oldest in our family. I feel like I, I should at least share a part of that. And, um, but a special um, happy Mother's Day, as Jason said, other, uh, like uh, a little bit earlier, it's a big deal. Moms are awesome, right? Uh, moms tell us that we're good at things where we're not. Happy Mother's Day to my mom who will watch this today and be like, honey, you were awesome. You're so good. You're the best speaker in, on planet Earth. And if there were other planets with speakers, you would be better than them too. Right? I mean, like, isn't they just lie to us and it's okay. And I love it. And, um, and it's really fun. I'm having a little girl whose like, primary love language is like giving, and it makes Mother's Day fun because we go shopping together um, for Mother's Day, and, um, and it's kind of, you know, we were shopping and kind of theming it out of all the things we wanted to do, and they were all thoughtful gifts of let's make mom a gem bag and color it, and, you know, let's give mommy this, and let's make a mug, and we'll put our thumbprint on it, all that sweetness, and then just to prove that genetics works, we're walking through A.C. Moore, and she walks across an aisle with this, and um, it's a King Cobra, and she's like, Daddy, we should get Mommy that and put it in a bag so when she opens it, it's a snake and it scares her. And I'm like, you're my daughter. I love you. <laughs> because in the midst of all that sweetness, is like, let's put a snake in a bag and terrify her. And the fact that she held this gift till last so that Jenny could have this buildup so each gift was like, oh my goodness, this is so nice. And then the next, oh, this is so sweet. And then it's like, so this is like this growing crescendo of gifting to uh, Jenny. And then she's like, let's put this in last. <laughs> I'm like, you are so sneaky and so mine. And I love it. And, and so um, the kind of lesson, if you see anything bad today, it's totally the father's fault. Okay? So if that's any takeaway from today's message, you got it, right? Anything wrong today? Dad's fault. Okay, um, today we're going to continue a message that we started uh, last week. It's uh, a message uh, that you've provided the content through your questions. Uh, last month, I uh, kind of sent out a questionnaire and said, hey, what are some of the questions that you have? What are some of the doubts that you have? What are some of those kind of deeply like shaking core kind of questions that rock you? And today's question, it was the biggest single response. It was deeply moving, actually, reading uh, the series of questions around this specific struggle, because uh, you didn't just ask the question, you gave me the circumstance around the question. And I appreciated, for those who sent it in, I appreciated your vulnerability, and I appreciated your willingness. And so today, I just wanted to honor you, um, so many of you who asked this one question. And to start, I want to take you to a Chinese newspaper that came out this past week that told a story about a woman in the Shang-Chi re region. Uh, who bought a Japanese Spitz puppy for $190. It's an adorable, cute little puppy. And um, she took it home, uh, and she began to raise it. She noticed there were some things early on that just didn't make sense. This little adorable puppy, was never, he never barked. And as he got older, um, his fur started to thicken, and his tail was growing longer than what it should have been. Other dogs seemed to, to be terrified of it, and the puppy stopped eating. 
And so naturally, this woman who had spent $190 on this puppy started to get concerned and began to kind of seek some outside counsel. And in the course of uh, pursuing kind of like some advice for why my dog is stopping to eat, um, she discovered that she had not bought a puppy, she had bought a fox. And that over the course of a series of a few months, this little tiny adorable Japanese Spitz puppy grew into what it was, which was a white fox. And uh, kind of the, the shock of that moment, we're realizing I can't raise a fox, that's dangerous. And so having to give it away to a zoo, because that's about the only place you can take a fox that has been raised by a human. And when I was reading that story, I was thinking about your question, the question that so many of you asked. And I realized that that story is a lot like your question. It's a lot like life, in fact, if you really think about it, that you start off in a relationship, you think it's a puppy, and then one day you wake up and you look beside you and it's a fox. Right? I mean, and not a good kind of fox, not like my wife, fox. I mean, <laughs> yes, I, I mean that completely, totally shocking reality that life didn't turn out the way you thought it would. Where what you are staring at, whether it's in a job, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in your finances, what you thought you had figured out completely hits you. And you realize you're staring at something far more terrifying and far more evil than you ever imagined. But life has a way of doing that. And that was kind of the heart of your question, was why? Why in the world does things happen in this world? Why do they happen to me? Why are there bad things? Why are there evil things? Why are there situations and circumstances that I find myself in that I never wanted to be in? And where does God fit in all of that? And the challenge with that question um, is that it's, it's a really multifaceted question. It's really deep, it's profound, and even in processing through this, I have to be honest, I could keep you here for three hours and we could walk through the grand philosophical answers to that question. That's a really deep question. But to honor you, because so many of you answered, asked this question not from a philosophical bent, you ask this question from this personal struggle or from circumstances that you're walking through and that you're witnessing. And that while I recognize that um, there are so many different facets and, and ways of pushing into this question, I want to answer it based on who asked it and honor those people in the midst of their struggles who are willing to voice their doubts and their concerns. Which means there are going to be philosophical things I don't touch because I'm going to to gear towards the personal side of the question. But it doesn't mean that there's not philosophical answers to your question. And that's why we have a place like Starting Point, which is a little glass space when you walked in with the two glass doors, that we're there every single week because there are going to be questions. I recognize that I will stir up more than I will satisfy or solve today. And if there are philosophical tensions that you feel with this question that you would like to address or like to have a conversation, that's what starting point's for. And that's what we've created that space so that you can have a conversation that goes beyond just the stage and what the speaker says that day from the Bible. And in the midst of this question, I'm going to limit it to my 30 minutes. I'm going to press into the personal. But your disclaimer is that if I didn't satisfy, if I didn't completely address your question internally, no, I want to. 
I just know it's Mother's Day and we all have reservations, okay? And, and so I'd love to talk to you right after. And, and to kind of start, I want to take you to a place, because here's the thing. You did not just discover this question. This has been a question that people have struggled with for a very, very long time. This has been a question that humanity has wrestled with. And I want to take you to a place where your very modern question is being asked. A moment that Jesus steps into where that question is completely present through multiple people. And in the midst of that moment, I want us to pull out the answer to the question around why. And to discover and to unpack what that person and that perspective can bring. The story is found in John chapter 11. And just to kind of set the backdrop, there are four biographies in the life of Jesus found in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are are really similar to one another. They are written around the same time period. John is one that's written last. John is the last biographer to write about Jesus. He pulls out aspects of Jesus' life that the other three had not focused in on. The reason why is because the first three write their books within um, kind of a short time frame right after Jesus is risen from the dead. There's a lot of kind of pertinent questions. There's a lot of explanation about the what and the how of this thing called Christianity, but a lot of the why questions weren't addressed. So what happens is that these disciples are so aggressive, they are so ready to go out and tell the whole world what they have experienced and what they have personally witnessed, that they, they're doers. They're not spending a lot of time thinking and reflecting on it. Where that happens is through a guy named Paul, who writes a majority of the New Testament, and through a guy named John. John, towards the end of his life, um, has a very, had a very close relationship with Jesus and realizes that the three accounts, the three biographies of Jesus, answer one level of questions about Jesus, but they don't answer some of the broader questions that people now have who have grown up in Christianity. And so John writes his book or his letter, um, the Gospel of John, to address this first generation of Christians. Because the first one are are geared towards people who never heard of Christianity. John is written in a context where Christianity is now present. And so naturally, there are things that come up in John that wouldn't be found in any of the other books. And the story today is one of those things. John is addressing tensions. John's addressing challenges. John's telling aspects of the story that no one knew. And John tells one of the more famous stories about Jesus in John chapter 11. John tells a story about Jesus and his interaction with this very special family that he had a close relationship with. A family of two sisters and a brother who were prominent, who were wealthy, who lived right outside in a little tiny suburb of the ancient city of Jerusalem, who, because of their relationship to Jesus, hosted him many times whenever he would visit the city. And it's in this kind of context, it's in this backdrop, that John 11 comes out of the, the kind of jumps off. And Jason referenced the app earlier, and inside the app is the message notes, um, and I've preloaded the passages because there is 44 verses associated with the story I want to share with you today. And in order for the sake of time and the sake of clarity and lasering in on one specific aspect of this question, um, I've grouped the segments of Scripture that I'm going to read from, and it's already preloaded in that message notes inside the app. And it'll be on the screen behind me. It begins in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And so this is the character, Lazarus. He's the brother of the two sisters, Mary and Martha. They're all close friends with Jesus. And Lazarus had been sick and 
was continuing to get sicker. And so what happens that prompts this story is that they send messenger to Jesus, but Jesus is a solid day journey away from where they live. And so by the time they find Jesus with the story of Lazarus' sickness, Lazarus is already dead. Jesus waits a couple of days, and then he returns. He travels the full day back to this place called Bethany, the same place where just recently they had tried to kill him. So Jesus has a bounty on his head in this region, and Jesus returns to this area because of the invitation, because of the sickness and ultimately the death of Lazarus. And that's why it says for four days, because a day journey, the two days wait, and the day back, he comes in on the fourth day. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. This is a very prominent family. They're influential. They're wealthy, not just in Bethany, but in the surrounding area of Jerusalem as well. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. So Jesus is walking up in the aftermath of this tragedy. Martha catches wind that Jesus is coming into town, so she leaves and goes, and Mary stays behind still weeping and mourning. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, verse 21, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that's it. That's the the essence of what this story plays out. Martha meets Jesus and she's like, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would still be alive. She's bringing up to the surface this question, this struggle that we've all dealt with around why God? Like, Jesus, why weren't you here? I know you could have done this. Where were you? And she, with the implication, pretty explicit, Jesus, you could have stopped this from happening. This didn't have to be this way. And instead of a funeral, we could have been having a party because you healed my brother. And I love that John doesn't back away from this difficult moment because what we're about to watch unfold takes this question of why and drills down to the answer, the ultimate answer and solution for us walking through it. I'm going to skip a couple passages um, and jump down. What happens in the interim and what I'm skipping is a conversation between Martha and Jesus that we'll pick back up in, uh, in a later passage, but keep going at 30. It says, now Jesus had not entered the village. He's right outside, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Here's what you need to know about ancient Jewish culture. Um, For the Jewish uh, culture, uh, death was a big deal. In fact, there was an entire industry that had um, raised up around this this kind of issue around death, and that when someone passed away, the family would hire professional mourners. These would be people you would pay. They would come in. They would weep. They would well. They would make large dramatic gestures whenever the body was being carried through the public square. It was a way of drawing pomp and circumstance. It was a a way of making a very big deal about someone's life. And the wealthier you were, the more people you could pay to come show up and make a big deal about it. 
We don't exactly have this in our culture, but there's still essences of this, right? That if someone passes away that's prominent, we typically can detect their prominence because of the place that the funeral's held, the number of people that show up at that funeral, right? The type of guest and music and special like, like rituals that go around it. There's an aspect even today when Billy Graham passed away a couple months ago, he, he was placed in the U.S. Capitol underneath the dome, right? This was this prominent American expression of something, of someone whose death was considered culturally important. And so there's this pomp and circumstance. And Jewish people in, the, kind of in this society would pay people to show up and to professionally mourn. And on top of that, Mary and Martha are popular people. They're affluent people. And so there's a large crowd with Mary. And that's why when she gets up, they all rush out. Because whenever she leaves to go to the tomb, the professional mourners are to be there weeping with her. And drawing and making and calling all a crowd to come around her. Because grief was very public in the ancient Jewish society. And so she runs off. It says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Same struggle Martha has, this question of why God, if you had just been here. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along her with also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And it says that, in the midst of that, Jesus has this like movement. The, the English doesn't capture it. It says he's deeply moved and troubled. Um, it's, it's not deeply moved and troubled. It's actually a Greek word picture of a horse, the way a horse, when it's really angry, will snort through its nose. Something that maybe you've seen before. It's this really kind of physical expression of intense anger and frustration. It's not deeply troubled. It's this level of emotional kind of rage internally that few of us see. The only time I think you would, I feel it when I watch the news and I see school shootings. When I watch the lives of innocent kids perish because they just went to school one day. I don't know if you feel that when you watch that and it plays out and inside of you something comes up and you just get mad. It's not just sadness, it's an anger. Or like when you see a story of a child abuser, or Boston Marathon bombing, something in you is like, that's not right. It's wrong. And this, is what, this is what John's trying to capture when he says he's deeply moved and he's troubled. That is what Jesus is feeling. And it says that Jesus in that says, where have you laid him? And they say, come and see, Lord, they replied. And then the shortest verse in the Bible, it says, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man who he had kept from dying, this, blind, this man from dying? See, what's interesting is this moment. And this, in this moment, I just want to camp out for a few minutes because in this moment is a lot underneath the surface. One, we see a crowd, a crowd who is weeping, a crowd who is moved. And what do you hear in the midst of the conversation of the crowd? You hear two things, right? You hear one, oh, look how Jesus loved him. He's crying for him. He's brokenhearted for him. And the subtext of that is, oh, Jesus loved him, but he, he wasn't 
He's good, but he wasn't great. He wasn't able to do and rescue Lazarus. It's the whole God is good, but not great argument in the midst of a tragedy. Oh, I'm sure God is love. It's just, unfortunately, God wasn't able to lift his hand to stop it. And then you've got the other part of the crowd, right? The other ones who contrast to this group says, um, could, couldn't he have stopped this from happening? Because two miles, less than a month before this, a couple months, Jesus is in Jerusalem, just two miles away, and they witness this very public, profound demonstration of Jesus healing a blind man. This miraculous thing where a blind man now has sight. And they're like, could not the guy who did that in Jerusalem two miles away, couldn't he have stopped this? The subtext being, oh, he's great, but he's not good. Like maybe God could stop it, but God doesn't really care. Which oftentimes in really kind of personal moments of angst, those are our struggles, isn't it? God is good, but he must not be great. Or God is great, but he must not be good. Because if he was good, he would have stopped the cancer. He would have stopped the divorce. He would have stopped whatever it is. He would have stopped the school shooting. And that's, that's the two ditches that I think grief sends us into in the midst of these moments of tragedy where we begin to ask the question around why. And I think it's not just this crowd. We all have that moment. For me, I remember my moment where the why in the world kind of collided with me. As a small child, um, one of my earliest memories is around death. I grew up with a single mom who's an incredible woman, extraordinary woman who raised me and my brother. But the earliest memory I have um, was of the loss of my father. And I remember vividly uh, the first prayer I ever learned to pray. We didn't even grow up in a really religious house, but I remember the first prayer that I really intensely prayed. After my mom would leave the room and it was just me and my tiny little self on the bed with kind of my thoughts and my prayers, I remember praying to God, God, don't, like, God, if you're like real, like whatever, whoever, like whatever, um, could you not take my mom too? You took my dad. But if you take my mom, I don't know how I'll do this. I'll be all alone. Please, Please, God, don't take my mom too. I prayed that every single night from a preschooler into a preteen year. Because then you become a teenager and you're like, God, can you know, you start kind of making some deals. Like, I'm not saying you got to get rid of them, but like a, an island, <laughs> paradise, you know, distant. But like up until that preteen season, every single night I would pray that. Because I realized, like that was that moment for me, that obviously, if you were able to take my dad, you must be able to take my mom too. And I don't know if I trust you, and I don't know if I know you, and could you just like hold off on that if you're planning to? And that was coming from this little tiny heart, five-year-old boy, begging God every night. And I recognize that that may be my moment, but you have a moment too. Maybe your moment happened when you stepped into your teenage years and you realized that other teenagers are just straight up mean. And the way that and the first time you encountered a bully and the things that she said or he said to you. Or maybe for you, it was the first time you sat in a doctor's office and it wasn't a physical, it was a 
It was a prognosis that had a far terrifying word attached to it, like cancer. Or maybe it was the first time you realized that Mother's Day would be a holiday, but it would never be your day. We all have those moments where we stare at the reality in front of us and realize that there is a deep and burning pain in life. And I think the pain, the purpose of pain, is to point us to something. And the challenge with pain is if we're not careful, instead of it pointing us to something, we start pointing fingers at someone. And we start to look for blame. And we start to look for the reason it happened. And this is what plays out in this group, isn't it? This crowd is like, it's his fault. But there's something deeper even in the midst of the weeping. You notice that it says that the crowd is weeping. And then it says that Jesus wept. Now what's fascinating is, and this is in English, but this isn't written. John writes this in Greek. And the word for weep in Greek, those two words are different. John's trying to make a point that the way the crowd is weeping is different than how Jesus is weeping. He uses a different verb for weep for Jesus. He's like, Jesus is looking at this entire situation completely different from how they're weeping. They're weeping in this loud, expressive, wailing kind of despair. Jesus stands and weeps silently because he realizes what he's standing in front of and what's happening in front of them should have never been there in the first place. You see, this group, they're weeping because Lazarus died young. Jesus is weeping because Lazarus died. And that's subtle, but it's significant. You see, This whole industry, this professional mourners, these people who had shown up because Lazarus had passed away, and this tragedy of a young man passing away early, what they're seeing in their circumstance is different than what Jesus sees in his. Jesus recognizes that what was playing out in front of him was never supposed to happen in the first place. He realized that death shouldn't have been present in this situation, but it was. Let me kind of get a little philosophical. I've never walked through the forest or a safari lands and seen gazelles in support groups because they're prey. I've never seen predators on chat rooms talking about the guilt of still being around when all the gazelles aren't. I grew up around animals. And the thing that surprised me early on is for me as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old who wrestled through death at a level and a way, it just seemed to naturally happen in the animal kingdom and it didn't seem to bother them. I would watch my cat lose a kitten and she didn't go to grief counseling. She moved on. And I don't know what to do with that. But as I got older and reflected and kind of grew into that more philosophical frame that I now have, I remember thinking how strange it is that what is so normal and common to the whole experience of earth and existence is so gut-wrenchingly earth-shaking for us when we experience it. 
Death is a 100%. Like, it's the only guarantee I can give us all in this room is that you will die. The only guarantee I have is you will die, and I will too. And yet, what happens with this 100% guarantee that earth gives us? We are caught off guard by it every single time. It's like we're surprised. It's like we're the fish who's surprised because he's wet because he's in water. But fish never are surprised by the wetness of water, but yet we're surprised by the reality of life. And I think this is where there is this aspect that's a little deep underneath the surface of that Jesus is stepping into reality and he knows that the world was originally created without death present. Death and grief are so difficult to go through because you and I were never made to go through it. There's a reason you and I recognize death doesn't feel right. We celebrate and we recognize all the other things around life that are common. Eating is essential. Breathing is essential. And yet death, this very common thing for us all, catches us off guard every time. A funeral has never felt right for me. It doesn't matter how many I go to. And it's because Jesus recognized that pain can point us to something. Pain has a purpose, and it's to point us to tell us that something's not right. Your physical pain tells you something's not right. Your emotional pain tells you something's not right. And the spiritual pain of death tells us something's not right too. That the world we were created to live in was meant to live forever and we were meant to live forever too. It's why you and I are always surprised by time. I'm 37 today. I'm like, when the heck did that happen? I used to have hair and I blinked. I have a six-year-old. I'm like, when did she become six? When did my baby girl become a little girl? And I recognize I'll blink a few more times and I'll walk her down an aisle. And I'll blink a few more after that and someone will push me down an aisle in a casket. And yet time constantly surprises me because I was made to not live in time. And Jesus knows that. He's the creator. He knows what it was supposed to look like. But what did he do? He created a world with love being the highest ideal. In order to create a world where love is the highest ideal, there's a catch. It has to have choice. You have to choose if you're going to love. And what happens in a world of choice, right? We remember the story, or maybe you heard the story or read it in literature, snake slithers up and starts to talk, and nobody's concerned about a talking snake, and next thing you know, some choices are being made, and fruit gets eaten, and the whole world falls apart. And we've been reenacting that scene ever since it first happened. Because I don't need a Garden of Eden to know that the world's broken. I just wake up and I look in the mirror, and I know the world's broken. And I go through my day, and I know the world's broken. I grab my keys, why do I have keys? Because I have to make sure someone doesn't come in and take my stuff while I'm gone. But the brokenness of the world is so intertwined into my everyday existence. And yet Jesus is the only one in that moment who sees the world for the way it should have been, which was perfect, without sickness, without death. And that's why he weeps. He weeps with an anger. He weeps with a frustration, the same frustration and anger that you and I experience when we witness things that we know should have never happened. 
And yet he feels that when he looks at us because he knows this was never supposed to be the way. He wanted to spare us from this, but in order to create us and put us in a position to have a love relationship with him and with each other, he gave us choice. And we did what toddlers and teenagers and adults do everything. We made the wrong one. And we broke it. And we keep breaking it. This is why Jesus weeps. But fortunately for us, it goes on in verse 38. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. You ever noticed why four days is in this story so much? There's a reason. I, I, I'm weird. I pay attention to everything. And it's just strange, right? When you read this, you're like, why is John fixated on four days? Why does Jesus delay two days? Jesus could have shown up that day, Lazarus would have already been dead, and he could have raised him. Why four days? And it's because embedded in four days was a Jewish superstition. The ancient Jewish people believed that after someone died, the soul of their body, because we are, we're not a body who has a soul, we're a soul that has a body, right? The body would pass away, the soul would hover above the body for three days waiting for a moment to come back in. So the soul is like, oh, maybe this isn't over. I can go back in. And for three days, the soul would hover. And the Jewish superstition was, on the fourth day, when the body started to decay, the soul would catch the hint that it's done, and then the soul would flee. So Jews believed that anything, anybody who came back from the dead within three days was just resuscitated. And Jesus recognizes that if he shows up within that three-day mark, that they will think he's just some awesome defibrillator. And he's not there to make a lesson about being a defibrillator. He's not there to resuscitate Lazarus. And to make the point very clear, he delays so that he arrives on the fourth day where everyone knows that what's about to happen does not happen. Every single resurrection recorded in the New Testament that you see play out happens within the three-day mark. And John knows that people could have easily, because at this point, John knows that the rumor spreading about Jesus was that Jesus, he didn't come back from the dead. He was only in there three days. That was a resuscitation. That wasn't a resurrection. In fact, look at all the stories that get told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about the the, the resurrections that happened, they're all within three days too. Those aren't resurrections, those are resuscitations. Jesus did not conquer death. Jesus was a walking defibrillator. And John is wanting to make the point that there's something grander. Jesus is not a defibrillator. He's the defeater of death. And so Jesus delays four days, shows up and says, roll back the stone. And they're like, you don't want to do that? It smells really bad. And Jesus says, Martha, right? He's like, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now, here's the thing about glory of God. I know for some, maybe you grew up in church and glory of God has an idea. Maybe for some of you, you have no idea what glory of God means. Glory of God means something in John that it does not mean in any other book of the New Testament. John uses the word glory of God the way I might when Ella was a toddler and she would streak through the house naked. And if you happen to be there, I'd be like, well, there's my daughter, my daughter in all her glory, Right? 
This idea of glory being revelation, nothing hidden, fully seen, revealed, that idea of glory that we use in our English is what John is doing. That's the nuance that John uses that you see throughout the book of John. He uses it not as like the majesty and the bigness of God. He uses it as the revelation. Jesus is like, did I not tell you, Martha, that if you trusted me, I would reveal to you who I am and what that means. And so Martha, trust him. And so they take away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of people standing here. The crowd over here that says I'm good, but not great, and the crowd over here that says I'm great, but I'm not good. I know that they can hear me say that, you, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. I love that sentence. That is not a normal sentence. The dead man came out. But the dead man came out. His hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Okay, so when it says that uh, Lazarus comes out, the way they would bury a dead person, would, they would wrap cloth around you, kind of almost like a burrito. And then to seal it up, they would wrap a, a rope here and then a rope here. Essentially, they would kind of bookend the thing, almost like the way we wrap candy today. You know, it's got the little twisty things, right? So this is how they buried people in first century Jerusalem. And so Lazarus, here's Lazarus comes out and he hops out. He's a dead man. He's not Harry Houdini. Like he's alive, but he can't get out of this thing. And what does Jesus say? Someone remove the ropes. I wonder how many people rush to remove the ropes. I'd be like, yo, my mom's calling Jesus. I'll be back. But I'm not unwrapping that thing. But like, that's the moment. That's what's playing out. And Jesus, he's just done something extraordinary. He hasn't shown up and resuscitated Lazarus. He's shown up and he's resurrected Lazarus. And I don't know about you, but resurrection is far more impressive than resuscitation. We got a defibrillator out there. I, I may bring you back to, to life if you have a heart attack in this room or our medical team can respond and bring you back. But that's different than what Jesus does. Jesus walks into the graveside service and says, it ain't over yet. And he taps on the top of the coffin and he says, get up, you're not done. That's different than a defibrillator. And this is what Jesus does. But here's the challenge. I think if you're struggling with why this story at this point, you would say, but Jesus rose Lazarus back from the dead. But what about my struggle? What about my pain? What about the death that I witnessed? What about what I'm lacking in my life? What about the job that hasn't come yet? The bills that keep piling up? The hopelessness that I feel every day? It's really easy if I just stop here that you could just say, well, Jesus did it then, but he didn't do it for me. See, I told you. But here's the thing. Lazarus' resurrection was not the point. How do I know that? Because Lazarus is not alive today in Israel. You're not going to catch a plane and go walking through the streets of Jerusalem and find Lazarus and his like trinket shop. Like he's not there today. Lazarus died again, which I imagine was a very interesting conversation. Hey, guys, do we re reuse the programs from the first time or do we reprint them? I mean, uh, do we use the same cloth? I I we've never been here before, right? I mean, Lazarus is one of the few humans who ever experienced two funerals. The second time they're like, I hope this doesn't turn out like the first because this is getting a little old, right? I mean, Lazarus still died. 
The resurrection of Lazarus was not the point. It was to point us to something. And what does he tell Martha it's pointing to? It's pointing to the revelation of who Jesus is. See, the key, the answer that Jesus gives to the people struggling with the why was a who. It was himself. The answer to the why that they had was a who. Because when you witness someone, raise someone back from the dead, it tells you that they have a power that goes beyond what your mind and my mind can comprehend. It means that you have truly been in the presence of someone extraordinary, way beyond what you could ask, imagine, or even kind of begin to assume you understand. That he recognized that a philosophical why, which he could have given, a philosophical answer to that question was not what they needed. What they needed for those people in the midst of grief was to be pointed to a who? To a person. To a person who had the power even over death itself. Because it does not matter if Jesus healed the sickness, I would still die. It doesn't matter that he raised Lazarus back from the dead. Lazarus still died again. What they needed to know, that there was someone in their midst that was greater than the power of death. Someone greater than their struggle. Someone superior to the strains and the pressures of life. That's what they needed to see. And the reason I think that was true is because what you find John 11, this struggle, this crowd asking, why God, why? You don't find that question, why God, why, in the early church. They don't ask this question. They don't struggle with this tension around God, why does bad things happen? The early church gets started. They're running out telling everyone about this incredible man who happened to be God who came back from the dead so that we could all experience life and forgiveness and grace and freedom. And what do they find when they start telling people? That they violate the one law in the Roman Empire that gets you crucified and killed. And the early church at the very beginning in all of its movement finds itself bumping up against persecution and suffering. And what they don't do, which is very fascinating, is they don't ask why God to the suffering. They don't ask why God to the persecution. They don't ask why God to the pain that they are experiencing because they're making a stand for him. They, they get thrown in the middle of Colosseums and their, their spectacles who are eaten by lions. They're beheaded. They're crucified. They're stoned. They, they suffer brutal deaths. And yet in the midst of that, they never, ever ask why. It's because that person, that who, brings a worldview. It brings a perspective that calls them to lift their eyes above just the why question and to focus their eyes on the who and the grander perspective of what he was going to do. And so what does that happen? How does this play out? How am I so confident of this? Because I have been to Rome. And one of the things that you can do if you go to Rome is you can take a, a tour of something called the catacombs, which was the, early, the burial grounds for the, the Roman people, specifically the church. And inside the catacombs, as you go three and four and five stories underground, as you find this image, this image I have a picture of, scattered throughout the catacombs and the places where Christians would worship together and where they would attend the funerals. The early Christian church's symbol was not the cross. One of the earliest Christian symbols was an anchor. This is what was scattered throughout all of the catacombs, where these people, knowing it was illegal to believe in Jesus, would gather together underground, and they would sing and they would pray, sometimes whispering to avoid detection. 
And what would sit on the wall beside them was an anchor, this visual, because they recognized that they had an anchor. They didn't understand everything about life. They didn't have all the scientific understandings that we have today, but they got life. And they understood that while I'm living my life and a storm comes and the waves shake and rock me and the circumstances challenge me that if I've got an anchor down deep where the storms can't reach, if I've got an anchor at the bottom and I'm securely tightened to that anchor, then the storm may shake me, but it will not sink me. And that's what they would gather and that's what they would remind themselves of, that our image, that our victory, our, our answer to the grand question of why all of this, the answer is the who. And with that, who comes the worldview that even in the midst of the darkest places of life, the anchor still holds, that he's greater, that he's stronger, that he's bigger than whatever I find myself in. And that reminder that the storms may shake me, but they will not sink me, carried the early church throughout that season without ever asking the question, why God? Now, I recognize for some of us, this idea, everything I've shared, you receive it up here, but this challenge for you is this idea around trust and faith that Jesus tells Martha she has to do in order to grab hold of that anchor. And I would say if, that's your, if your tension is around this issue of trust and faith and how to have it and what does that even mean, I would, I would just say give us one more week if today's your first time. Next week, I'm going to press into this question around trust. I'm going to push into this question around faith. And how do you do it? But for those who are still kind of processing through, uh, the, the answer that Jesus was pointing people to was the who. And the idea that the anchor holds. And that in the midst of the storm, you have to trust and you have to lift your eyes above the circumstances and see the character of God who has promised to make all things new. Who made a way for you and I to be made new. And to have hope. That's what our eyes have to lift up to when we faced with this question around why. And that in order to kind of close out today, I've asked the band to, to kind of teach you a song that maybe you've heard before, but I want, to, I want you to hear the song as the last part of the message as we close out today. Because what do you do when you find yourself in the midst of the storm and all you got the anchor? All you have is an anchor. It's the trust. And one of the ways that the early church would lean onto that anchor, one of, the church, one of the ways that the early church would find strength in the midst of their storms and their struggles and their persecution and their pain is that they would do something called worship. And worship is more than just singing, although that's a part of it. It's, it's above that. It's about our heart and our mind beginning to kind of lift our gaze from around here to up to the character. Worship's about lifting our eyes off the circumstances of our life and seeing the character of the one who controls and who owns and holds our life. It's about the one looking at the one who is in control, not looking at our life that feels out of control. And the song that the band's going to teach us today is meant to be an instruction. It's a song called Even When It Hurts. And for some of us, that maybe just to listen to the lyrics today might be your next step. It may be to just simply read the words of the song that they're going to beautifully lead us through. For some of us, it may be that your step is just to sing it because you're standing in the midst of the storm and you're going to put your weight on the anchor that holds even if you're not sure you can hold your own.
and to sing those words out and to, whether it's you reflecting on that relational struggle you're going through right now or the financial struggle or the search for purpose and meaning that you find yourself bumping up against. And maybe for some of you, everything is really good and that's great. And for you in this song, it's just something to file back in your head or maybe even to say, God, I know there's someone who needs to hear that song today that I know and I care about, and I'm going to send it to them. And for some of you, it may be saying, hey, I want to sign up for this thing called the 112 that starts next week because I want to grow in my faith. I want my faith to be stronger. But that for whatever it may be, wherever you may find yourself or the people around you, the answer to the question when you find yourself personally in the struggle and the storm is not, it's not a philosophical answer, it's a who answer. And that we would put our eyes on the person of Jesus, that what we find that comes with it is a perspective that lifts us above the storm we can't control to the one who's in control. Let's pray.